There are very few places where you walk in the door in the morning and chase, you know, bad guys, criminals, nation states, what, what have you, and try to outsmart them and try to figure out how we can make the internet as a safer place. Hello, and welcome to Xconomy Voices. We are a production of Xconomy, the news and events company focused on business and technology in the exponential economy. I'm Wade Rausch, a contributing editor at Xconomy. And here on the show, I talk with some of the world's leading innovators and entrepreneurs and ask them what they're working on, what they're excited about, and why they think their idea or business is going to change the world. Our guest today is Christopher Alberg. He's the CEO of a cybersecurity firm called Recorded Future. Every day, the Cyber Daily email newsletter from Recorded Future shows up in the inboxes of 25,000 IT officers around the world. They read it because they know that there's a hidden realm of hackers and fraudsters and rogue states just waiting to exploit vulnerabilities in the world's computer systems. We wanted to talk to Alberg because cyber attacks have been such a big part of the news lately, with hackers penetrating systems at organizations all the way from the Democratic National Committee to the SWIFT network that banks use to send trillions of dollars of payment instructions every day. Recorded Future's specialty is scouring the web for what it calls threat indicators that Alberg says can help its customers anticipate and fend off these kinds of cyber attacks. The company is eight years old, it's raised about $30 million in venture backing, and it has 120 employees. To find out more, I visited Alberg at the company's headquarters outside Boston. So myself, I'm Christopher Alberg. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Recorded Future. I uh, have a background in analytics and data visualization originally. Um, I grew up in Sweden. I came to the U.S. 20 years ago. I started a prior company called Spotfire here in the Boston area that we built and, and sold eventually to a company out on the West Coast. And then started Recorded Future together with two guys, uh, you know, so I'm a co-founder. Started that back in, in early 2010 and been sort of off, off the ground since then. Great. So what is the central idea at Recorded Future? If you had to say what sets you apart from other companies in the cybersecurity or threat detection sphere, what's your key idea? So cybersecurity has become an enormous marketplace in itself. It's probably a $100 billion market or soon to be if you add it all up. We play in the sub-market that people would call threat intelligence, probably a billion and a half of a market. We're basically centered on, on the idea of being able to pick up threats before they hit your doorstep, what happens outside your company. So we try to detect bad actors before they, they come to you, before they attack you. We try to understand their intentions, their capabilities, what they're up to, what they're doing tomorrow, what they're doing next week. But we also try to find out who is being targeted. So, you know, I always say that the best indication of uh, who's going to make a break-in into your house is that your neighbor has a break-in. So we help people understand what happens outside their firewall, basically, and do that in a way that is very actionable and very impactful to their company. And what's the basic underlying technology? What's, what would you say are the tools you're applying to that problem? So what we do, we start off using the web as one large sensor. So if you think about it, historically, when you do intelligence, uh, you know, you'd have agents running around on the ground. You might listen into phone calls. You might have satellites in the sky. You actually might read newspapers, open source intelligence, lo lots of ways to do intel. Um, what we started off with was this idea that the world's information was quickly flowing to the internet. 
and, and the web. And so we started off harvesting the web at a large scale and doing that not just in English, but in basically all the languages that bad news happen in, Chinese, Russian, uh, Farsi, Arabic, English, Spanish, French. So, so, and it sort of now built that up to basically covering some 30, 40 different languages in, in total. But then also getting into the underground of the web, as people like to call it, the dark web, and, and doing that, as well as into the technical areas of the web. And, and really being able to pull together from open sources, dark web sources, as well as technical sources, all into one place where we pre-connected the dots to allow us to find the most imminent threats. What are your equivalent of the intelligence agents running around it? So we're talking about machine learning, so, you know, the machine learning plays a role in all of this, absolutely, but the, our equivalent of the, the people running around, and, and that's a good question, actually, because it turns out that our competitors in this space, they basically all are dependent on humans uh, collecting information, and which can be all nice and fine, but the problem is it's inherently very unscalable. We run hundreds and, and up towards thousands of servers uh, in the cloud that, that collect information from all those types of sources I talked about before, open sources, uh, dark web sources, as well as technical sources, and then pre-aggregate and aggregate that information into consumable uh, information, artifacts, you know, whether it's data visualizations or alerts or reports or API feeds for computers. And then what are you doing on those sources? Are, uh, can, you, can you say a little bit about sort of the techniques you're applying or the, the computer science approaches to analyzing that information, turning it into something actionable? So, so you can imagine that we, we pick up in a Chinese newspaper where China states their capabilities for, you know, their new offensive cyber capabilities that they're building or we're in a Russian forum, a series of uh, dark web actors discuss on how to commit fraud uh, to a retail business in the US. So there, what we do is natural language processing. So being able to look at language uh, where it might say, uh, you know, actor as A says to actor B, I'm developing this piece of malware that has this capability, da da da, and so on and so forth. And we're able to take that natural language and decompose that into data points that we can turn into data. In other cases, we pick up more technical information and organize that. And, and the part of the trick here is being able to marry the data that comes from narrative text with the data that comes from more technical sources and put that together in a place where it can be consumed by either a human or a machine. And then I guess you supply this intelligence to your clients in a form that lets them do something with it. So. Can you give an example of, of how this information might be made useful? If you, if you become aware of a threat, that threat may or may not materialize. What do you do next? So if you're, a, we'll assume you're a large financial institution somewhere here on the East Coast, and you know, lots of different things can happen. You might find out as simple as that your neighbor bank uh, was hacked. You want to know about that. You want to know about it immediately, because many times, the, the, the bad guys here, they might come after you, or predominantly will come after you, not necessarily because they wake up in the morning and say, I want to go hack bank X, but because they, under, they found a way in. And once they found a way in, they're going to go from target one to target two to target three, target four. So you're a target of convenience and, and you just want to make sure that whatever, when you see target one being hacked and if you're target three, you want to patch your systems based on what you learned from that hack in target one. So keeping a 
high degree of visibility to what's going on in the call it threat landscape is highly important. That's number one. Number two, you you might find out that in uh, in you know whether it's in a forum or similar that you see the bad guys talk literally talk and discuss about what software vulnerabilities that they're going to attack and on and on. There are many of these sort of scenarios. In fact, we probably count some sixty or seventy different core scenarios uh, of this kind that we configure our product to and help customers be prepared for for threats and be able to take action on them as soon as they see them. You guys have a blog where you sometimes share some of the things you're discovering about what's going on on the dark web. And and in recent months, you've been publishing, well, you've published a couple of stories about this this Russian hacker whom you've identified as, or you've given the name Rasputin Mm -hmm. to. And I just wondered if you could kind of tell that story a little bit, because I think it might be a good illustration of the kind of things that you guys do. On, on this Rasputin story, what we sort of worked there was that we found somebody after the election, uh, interesting enough, uh, who was selling access to um, a particular uh, government agency called the Election Assistant Commissions, uh, whose job it is to um, help secure, as well as not just secure, help organize, help build, help sort of put in place systems for running elections and helping states with this. And it's a fairly small agency, but but they have a very particular mission there. And it could make it an interesting target if you wanted to long range sort of or long term wanted to affect and influence systems. So in November, late in November, I think it was or mid-November, we detected this guy that we put the name on Rasputin. Uh, he was selling access to this, and, and uh, we detected that. We took it off the street. We we bought the the exploit, um, which was somewhat edgy in, in the way that we did it. Uh, we shared that with the relevant government authorities in, in a nice orderly fashion, uh, and then worked with them. Primarily, they you know they worked on it, and we supported them as much as we could over you know a series of weeks, and then eventually we published this because we thought it was an important story that needed to be told about this actor, and and uh, it uh, drove a fair amount of attention. You know, with with the DNC hacks and uh, Rasputin and and other stories surfacing, it seems like there's an increasing velocity of of cyber espionage, cyber warfare, and attacks going on. And I'm wondering whether objectively that's true or whether there's simply more coverage and more awareness than there used to be. So is there any way to gauge that from your perspective? Is there more hacking going on or is it just that the public's learning about the, those stories more often? No, you know, obviously the, the sort of the, there is a little bit of a perfect storm, uh, absolutely. And so there is more media coverage. I think that's one. But two, yes, there is more more hacking, absolutely. I think there's, but maybe more interestingly, we're seeing a different sort of hacking, if we want to use that word, than, than what we've seen before. And I'm using hacking in a very liberal sort of, because we've seen, and I think it's two things here. We've used to see a lot of people, you know, stealing credit card information or starting uh, stealing credentials. Now, what we saw last year in 2016 in the fall and are presumably going to see more of here is three three things. One is the attack on political uh, elections and, and the like. 
political infrastructure is probably the right, I, and I use the word political infrastructure maybe more than just election infrastructure because you don't need to, in fact, it's just unnecessary to attack election infrastructure. It's better to go the political infrastructure. And we've seen that happening in France now, post what happened in, in the US, and we're gonna see it elsewhere. So, so that's one. Number two, the idea of, uh, attacking the in internet in itself, so the Mirai botnet in, in the fall where uh, somebody attacked the DIN servers up in, in New Hampshire and which obviously had enormous impact on the internet for a couple of days. Scary in, in terms of the sort of securing the internet in itself. And then three systems that we never thought were hackable at all being attacked. So, you know, and the guys who, who got away with $89 million from Swift uh, that was a huge deal in my mind in the sense that they, A, attacked something that we thought was air gap, different, separate, <laughs> you know, pick whatever word you want, the SWIFT network, the money transfer network. Number two, these guys had the intention of stealing a billion dollars. And, you know, that's a very different proposition than, than stealing, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of th thousands of dollars of credit card information off credit cards. So I think these three, three examples, it's, it's less about the volume, but it's those three sort of just took it to a different, you know, different level here. Well, just to wrap up, I was curious, what's the most fun thing about your job and what's the most challenging thing about your job? So if you think about it, there are very few places where you walk in the door in the morning and chase, you know, bad guys, criminals, nation states, what, what have you, and try to outsmart them and try to figure out how we can make the Internet as a safer place. Uh, we're certainly not unique, but in terms of what we do for Threat Intel, I think we're pretty damn unique and, and uh, very few places where you get to walk through the door and have a database of 30 billion records and try to figure out how to sort of grow that in clever ways and how to figure that, use that data to figure out the intents and capabilities of the bad guys. And it's pretty unique and pretty fun. But what gives you a headache by the end of the day? By the time you're walking out that door, you probably are done, you know, feeling differently, right? It's, you know, probably exactly what I just said, the same things, you know, like it's, it's hard. It's very, very, very hard because the guy who's sitting on the other end, as I said, is not sitting still. And, and so, but I, I never sort of, I think if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you can't worry about headaches. There are going to be headaches every day, all the time. And, you know, headaches are to be gotten, getting rid of and, 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 and be solved. Well, Christopher Alberg from Recorded Future, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you very much. This is fun. You've been listening to Xconomy Voices. The show is reported and produced by me, Wade Rausch. Greg Wong edits my scripts. Our theme music was written and performed by the band New Fame. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe to Xconomy Voices on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. At our website, xconomy.com, you'll find news and commentary about high-tech innovation in 11 cities and regions around the country. You can also find out about live conferences coming up in your area at economy.com events. Stay tuned, and thanks for joining us. <laughs>